Hello, friends, and welcome to Something to Talk About, a podcast for women that supplements the current women's Bible study at First Pres Augusta. I'm Vanessa Hawkins, and for the next several weeks, Amber Barrett, various members of our Bible study teaching team, and I will discuss God's Word, specifically the book of Ecclesiastes and the unique way it speaks into our lives. Joining Amber and me today is Katie Driver. Welcome back, Katie. Thank you. Our dear friend and beloved Bible study teacher Ann Morris was scheduled to be with us today, but had to step away. Amber, can you tell us a little bit more about that? I can. In fact, I'm going to read just a little ditty that Ann sent me describing what she's doing. So for those of you who don't know, 150 days ago, Ann's little granddaughter, Elliot, was born by emergency C-section in Nashville. She was 24 weeks and had lived in a compromised place for six weeks as her mother's water's water broke at 18 weeks. She weighed one pound, 12 ounces, and was 12 inches long when she was born. She was kept alive by a machine that pushed 300 breaths per minute into her tiny, underdeveloped lungs. Her respiratory therapist looked at her mama one day and said, we have machines and we have our techniques, but this little baby is going to require an act of God. Her uncles and papa grew mustaches to remind them to pray for her. One uncle woke every night at 1, then 2, then 3 a.m. to plead with God for her little fragile life. Because of COVID-19, her parents were not allowed to visit her together, nor were her grandparents allowed to meet her. The doctor who was there at her birth has planned Elliot's first time outside for September 23rd, which is today. With great anticipation and with great thankfulness, her grandmother from North Augusta, Memma, which is Anne, is driving up to see her, even if she has to stay six feet away. We have watched God do what only he can do, a miracle. Mm. Elliot weighs seven pounds, 11 ounces now, and has grown to over 19 inches. Her lungs still need to grow and heal, and her going home day is not yet known, but she will breathe her first outside air on Wednesday morning. She has already breathed it since I'm reading this email, and her mama wants to be there. In huge letters over this hospital door is Luke 137. With God, nothing is impossible. I can't wait to stand there as I get my first eye-to-eye look on this baby girl for whom I've cried out to God. Thank you for my excused absence from this time with you, dear ladies. Love to you all, Anne. Hmm. Love that. We love you, Anne. Mm-hmm. We do love you, Anne. And we can't wait to see a picture. All right, ladies. Well, let's move on to first things first. You know, Anne told us last year, that she, last year, last week, that she was celebrating her 45th wedding anniversary. I really was looking forward to hearing about her first date. Maybe we'll get an <laughs> opportunity for that another time. But we're going to talk about our first date. So what was it like going on the first date with your husband? Amber, I love that you asked this question because Chris very sweetly just wrote me a letter a few weeks ago listing all the highlights of our early dating days and... And he did some serious digging to figure out exact dates, so I am super ready for this. <laughs> we were introduced by a mutual friend very briefly at the Indigo Girls concert in March of 1991, our junior year of high school. That was March 16th, to be exact. Um, not long after that, I went to the Westside prom with that same mutual friend, Clay Bagby, who is still a close friend of ours. Chris and I chatted a bit that night, but we didn't get to know each other until the following school year through High Life. Our um, our first group date was to the Exchange Club Fair, which is when both of our interests were piqued. But our first legit date was November 15th, 1991, and he lined up a great evening. So we, we ate dinner at an Italian restaurant, but we can't remember the name. 
It's now a used car dealership across the street from Warren Baptist. So (laughs) if any fellow Augusta natives out there remember the name of that restaurant, we want to (laughs) know. I remember my entree was very messy. It was gooey, cheesy, lots of noodles, just not a good first date choice. (laughs) And um, when I was remembering this, I also remembered the first time I ate with his family a month or so later, his mom served Cornish game hens, which I had to wrestle with to eat. (laughs) So I guess I was just destined to eat very awkwardly as I got to know Chris. Um, But back to the date, I play violin. So knowing that I appreciate classical music, he took me to Sacred Heart for performance of Mozart's Requiem. It was a beautiful performance, but the highlight was that one of the sopranos fell off the top bleacher. She must have passed out. If you've ever sung in a choir, you know that if you stand rigid with your knees locked and you, you add the hot robes onto that, you can get pretty woozy. So it was a pretty dramatic interruption, to say the least. <laughs> Afterward, we took a walk on the Riverwalk, and he held my hand. Then, of all things, we went to the grocery store, bought a National Enquirer, and laughed at it together back at my parents' house, because nothing says love quite like the National Enquirer. Absolutely. Yes. The rest is history. <laughs> yeah, girl, that's impressive <laughs> that you could remember that many details. <laughs> and it's great. such a wide span of yes. experiences, you know, from Italian to the opera to uh, the Tabloids. National Enquirer. Yeah, that's so funny. <laughs> well, my, my experience with John is that we were set up by... A mutual friend of ours, I used to work at the in the youth ministry here at First Pres, and I worked with somebody who lived with John at the time. And so he kept telling John, hey, you need to ask this girl out. Well, John, he'll be embarrassed that I said this, but I'm going to say it anyway. What I knew of John at that time was he was a great guy, and he and a lot of girls liked him, but he didn't ask anybody out. And I had recently been dumped, so I was like, do not try <laughs> to get John to ask me out, because he's not going to do it, and I already feel bad enough about myself. But Lo and behold, he did. He asked me out. Uh, we were at a church member's house for lunch, and he just said, hey, you want to go see this bluegrass concert? Y'all, I had never listened to bluegrass music. I barely <laughs> knew what bluegrass music was, but he handed me a CD, and I listened to that thing multiple times a day until we went on our first date. We had a good time. That is so sweet. Yeah, my, my first date with my husband is equally as tender. Um <laughs> He was calling me names on the playground, and I chased him <laughs> in third grade. Yeah, just warms your heart, doesn't it? So, but seriously, my dad was my dad worked in law enforcement, as we talked about last week, and everyone called him Pete. That wasn't his name, but everybody called him Pete. And so a mutual friend told Marcus, hey, I bet you won't call her Pistol Pete and make siren noises. He said, bet I will. And so he says, pistol Pete, pistol Pete, rear, rear, rear. And I chased him the rest of recess. It worked. <laughs> there you go. And now he's, <laughs> joke's on him. He's stuck. There you go. That's hysterical. But So I don't know. Our, our first time could be anything from the playground meeting to meeting at, at the corner store between our houses. I, I don't know. But I think maybe the official first was probably a school dance where we awkwardly danced together like, you know. <laughs> Uh, middle schoolers or high schoolers do. So he was my first date, my prom date, my homecoming date. He was all the dates. Mm. And so he remains the one who daily teaches me about the heart of God, just how he is patient with me. Uh, Lord knows he has to be and selfless in his love towards me. And so as as I think about the heart of God, we we discussed the heart of God last week when we talked about the heart of God for justice, as we looked at Ecclesiastes 4. And we considered 
God's heart for justice as we looked in particular at what Solomon refers to as evil under the sun and how injustices play out in our lives and in the lives of those around us. So this week, the preacher opens chapter five, cautioning us to guard our steps when we go to the house of God. When I read that verse, I instantly thought about my visit to the temple in Jerusalem. And what's notable about the temple is the steps going in. And everybody wants to go up the steps because it's the only entrance and it's where Jesus must have gone into the temple, Mm. where he must have entered. So everybody wants to travel those same steps. But what's interesting about the steps is that they have varying degrees of depth. So it doesn't allow for you to mindlessly go up the steps. Normally when we go up steps, we can kind of anticipate the next one and we don't have to really think about, you know, the steps. Well, going into the temple, you do. Um, You can't enter it mindlessly because of the differences in depth. And so you necessarily have to be very intentional about your approach. So we are often cautioned to prepare our hearts for worship, much like we would have had to prepare our hearts and our minds to enter into the temple. But our consumer mindsets might lead us to believe that that just means getting ready to receive from the Lord. And while it does mean that, it also challenges us to consider the heart that we're bringing to the Lord and our interaction and relationship with his people. Matthew 5 reminds us that if you go to worship the Lord and remember that someone has ought against you, leave your offering and go make things right with your brother or sister. And I just remember how striking it was for me when I first grasped that, wow, the Lord puts my relationship with my sister and my Mm -hmm. brother before my worshiping and bringing my offering to him. And so I just thought that that was a, a, it's a really powerful reminder. But guarding our steps when entering the house of God, as the preacher tells us, means being thoughtful about how we enter. And it suggests in verses four through six, being wise in our church going. So what is Solomon getting at, ladies, in this passage as he's talking about foolish and wise church going? In fact, Amber, could you talk to us about that? Sure. I noticed that Solomon paired up uh, wise actions when you go to church and foolish actions. Mm-hmm. And well, and before he did that, actually, first he says, when you come to the house of God, and I like that because it just mm-hmm. assumes you're going to come. Mm-hmm. So when you come, come, come regularly, come often, make it a pattern in your life. And when you come, guard your steps, come wisely and not foolishly. So he contrasts the two throughout those verses. If you're going to summarize it, you could say something like this, fools, come to offer sacrifices for sins that they really have no knowledge of. But the wise come in true repentance. Fools come with many words that flow from their own ideas and dreams. But the wise come to humbly listen and learn. Fools come to make rash vows they have no intention to fulfill. But the wise come making good on what they carefully commit to do. Fools come to be seen, heard, and valued. The wise come in reverent fear of the Lord. It's a common mistake, I think, to believe that everyone who goes to church does so without any of the foolishness just described above, but we know that's not the case. Church is a place for sinners who continually stand in need of healing, and we around this table know our own propensities to foolishness. So I think it's helpful for us to answer the question, in what ways do we personally want to grow in grace as it relates to wise church going. Yeah, um, as I answered this question, I really focused in on a lot of what you just said, Vanessa, about 
how we enter. And as we've seen at first glance, Ecclesiastes can feel pretty bleak. But here in Ecclesiastes 5, Solomon tells us that worship is a remedy for that meaningless meaninglessness found under the sun. And aren't you glad he doesn't just leave us with the meaningless bit? <laughs> you know, thank the Lord. But worship also carries its own potential for vanities because, as you said, Amber, it's done by sinful people. So I seriously couldn't get past the first three words of chapter five without seeing some need of um, personal application there. So um, Vanessa, as you said, verse one starts by saying, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. So even as we enter the church doors, we're charged with guarding our steps. And I spent some time looking at that phrase to figure out what it might mean practically for me. And I came across Exodus chapter three, verse five. As Moses is approaching the burning bush in the desert, God calls out, do not come any closer. Take off your sandals for the place you are standing is holy ground. And as we enter a worship service, we enter his presence in a very intentional, tangible way. So I don't know about you guys, but often I enter church feeling harried, running late after trying to speed up sleepy teenagers, frustrated that Ethan doesn't have his belt on right, and that Sarah isn't dressed appropriate for the weather. You know, it's 30 degrees outside and she's wearing Birkenstocks. Oh, the outrage. Um, You know, irritated with Chris because he didn't parent in the way I wanted him to while I was struggling to get myself ready in time. You know, these are all just the things that don't really matter. And I miss the opportunity to enter with guarded steps, prepared to meet God and find my sanity, as Eswine says, amid the madness of my own heart and the strivings after the wind in my daily life that hollow me out. You know, we have a remedy to that, a remedy to the meaninglessness, and here it is in worship. So, yes, if you see the drivers entering church looking like we rode in on a hurricane, please <laughs> forgive us. Um, but seriously, if, if I can change my perspective and recognize that it's a gift he wants to give me to be free of all that fretting as I enter his house— and not just a demand he places on me, then that it's for his glory and my benefit, I think I'll be able to let those things go and better prepare my heart for worship. That's so good. Yeah. And it resonates with me, just that idea of feeling like you have to come to church without the hurricane, you know, like you're supposed to arrive all put together. And what we think about being prepared is not really what a prepared heart, the important part of a prepared heart, because I'm with you. I'm a big fat mess when I come and Mm. Oftentimes, I'm worrying too much about trying not to be a mess. The other thing I found convicting from these verses is just the the fact that Solomon mentions that fools use a lot of words. Mm-hmm. And I like words. I like to think. I like to speak. I like to process with words. But I find that when I come to church, sometimes I think too much about what I'm going to say and not enough about what I'm going to hear. So whether that's just concern about the type of conversations that I'm going to have, will I be able to say the right thing at the right time? Or will I be able to express myself correctly? Or will I be able to say something that's encouraging or appropriate or whatever? I find myself oftentimes thinking about a lot of words so much so that my ability to listen is severely hampered. So there's pride in that for me and self-reliance. And so to come to church and to choose not to think so carefully about what it is I will say and how I will interact and those sorts of things, but to think, all right, what is the Lord going to say to me? And to trust that even then as I interact with other people and use words that way, that was 
a conviction to me. Mm. Yeah, I'm identifying with all of that. Uh, in particular, just the hurried nature of my life. And for me, it's always just the need to slow down enough to be more aware of the heart that I'm taking before the Lord. In corporate worship, we, we get the privilege of participating in these various means of grace, the preaching of the word and the communion. I want to make sure I'm pausing in all of my busyness and considering, am I participating in this grace in my interactions with others outside of worship? Is that carrying? Is it consistent with what I'm doing right now with my body? Is that the same heart that I take out of here and interact with the Lord's people outside of his house? So partaking in the Lord's Supper, for instance, is, is participating in a means of grace, but it's also a mutual preaching of the gospel to each other. It, it's calling others to remember the Lord's death until he returns. And so is my life outside of this fellowship meal also preaching that same truth? Mm-hmm. And it takes a quiet heart and it takes me uh, preparing my heart, taking time to slow down and be mindful of how I enter to know that and to be aware of that. Part of being in the body of Christ is necessarily to be joined with others who, like us, sometimes behave wisely and sometimes behave foolishly. In what ways have the foolish actions, Amber's talked a little bit about um, how that is depicted in Ecclesiastes 5, the foolish versus wise actions, but in what ways have the foolish actions of people within the church caused you or someone you know hurt, and how have you seen that dealt with or how have you dealt with it yourself? Well, I'll go ahead and start. Um, As a wife of one of the pastors here at First Pres, I really do consider it a unique gift that we have been privileged to serve a people who for 18 years have really made our service an absolute privilege. We have been loved and supported here in ways that not all pastors experience. With that privilege, of course, comes responsibility. And I'd say one of the hardest responsibilities is the one of having to make decisions in the midst of difficult and broken relationships or circumstances where there is no clear cut answer or solution. Mm. For me, church hurt has come only occasionally in the form of brothers and sisters who disagree with a decision made by church leadership and so feel free to express their disapproval harshly quickly, while also making unfair assumptions as to the motivation behind that decision. Mm -hmm. I often see the love and care and struggle that go with hard decisions John has to make, and so it hurts when people accuse him of intentionally or stupidly causing them harm. That said, it's a whole different story when someone comes humbly wanting to express a concern and does it in a way that actually helps to facilitate a solution and strengthen the relationship in the process. That kind of critique is so life-giving. So how have I dealt with church, that type of church hurt? Well, I have to say the first first way is just to empathize because I am equally guilty. I quickly jump to conclusions about why so-and-so did such and such and what they should have done instead. And I know my own need for forgiveness in that area, which makes me at least willing to admit that others can and should be forgiven as well. Then the other thing that helps me with it is taking it to the Lord and just really dealing with the wrong reasons. I want people to be pleased with me or my man. Uh, I allow the need for, I'm trying to learn to allow the need for conviction, even if the way that it was brought was wrong. Hmm. And then also learning to have the freedom to let it go. So those, that's kind of been a process. I think that's helpful just to know 
what goes on on the other, you know, on the side of leadership that mm-hmm. that congregation, the congregation may or may not see. So I appreciate you sharing that, Amber. Um, I think for me, similarly to last week when we discussed injustice, I, I don't have much experience with someone being truly foolish towards me, but, and this might be a bit touchy, but there are certainly times when I have felt judged for my parenting choices mm. or have felt pressure to parent in particular ways within the church. Um, you know, I think there's just so much advice in our culture and from within the church regarding parenting as well. And I think it can create standards at times that feel almost impossible to achieve and some standards that are perhaps unnecessary to achieve. I think it's really easy even as believers to judge each other in this way because we're all passionate about our kids. Um, So I think sometimes in communities of faith, we take the advice that's out there in books and blogs and everywhere in between, and much of it's great advice, by the way, but we construct rules and ideals of what's good and bad that may or may not have any true relevance to the gospel. Mm -hmm. So whether we're talking about nutrition, scripture, memory schedules, nap routines, discipline, school choice, technology, dating, I mean, the list goes on and on, but many of us have researched and thought long and hard about the right way of doing these things. And that's not wrong, but when we tend to create cultural norms and standards within our churches, and then the pressure to get it right, I think, can just become unbearable. So the problem for with that, I think, is that it leaves little room for authenticity, and then we're not vulnerable with each other. And I know mm-hmm. I tend to look at others and think, man, I've totally messed this thing up, but look at their family. They've done it right. Not realizing that they have struggles of their own, and we might actually be able to help each other out if we shared them. So I think awareness is number one. Paying attention to whether you yourself are judging others and um, Lastly, I think mentorship of young moms is also super valuable. When there are women a little bit further down the path, investing in moms and offering godly counsel and encouragement, discouraging some of that unnecessary mom guilt, I think, that we all experience, it adds to the sense of security and support and therefore authenticity and vulnerability, just the true sharing of life that we experience within the church. Um, but but I have to I have to end by saying that I... I also have experienced a tremendous amount of support in parenting from the church. So the love and support far outweighs the the bad. And, um, you know, we don't, we don't throw church away when we experience these things. We don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Mm-hmm. We keep moving towards each other and just walk through the messiness together. That's so good. That is so good. And I think awareness is so key. And I think... Because uh, I have been the chief of offenders in hurting people, you know, often inadvertently, that when I am hurt by people, I tend to be the one to look for, um, well, how might they be hurting? And I tend to ascribe to hurting people hurt people. And I think that comes out of a season of life for me. I've talked often about losing my father. That was a, a difficult time of life. But... I also know that times when I've cared the least about hurting others has been when I've been in pain. And I think pain demands that you pay attention to it, causing you to gaze inward without proper attention to how you are affecting others and how your actions are affecting others. It's not malicious. It's, it's inadvertent often. And I think church hurt is often that way. It's not malicious. And so in the, in the church where I served, I was, while I was grieving the loss of my father, I had previously 
served as the new member teacher, which is a tender space to serve because you walk with people when they're getting to know the Lord and they're young in their walk and in their relationship with the Lord. And so I had walked with this one lady in particular through lots of serious medical issues with her newborn and through just a really difficult season in her life as a new Christian. So in this season, when I was suffering loss, she had a crisis and I wasn't as attentive as I had been in times past. Mm. And I was finding, honestly, in that season, hard just to get one foot in front of the other. But what she saw was that I wasn't caring for her in the way that she had become Mm. accustomed. And she was hurt by my inattention. And what I've learned is that hurting people hurt people and often without being malicious, but just being unaware of others' pain because of our own pain. And so... In this cultural moment in particular, what I am, am beginning to become aware of is that grieving people are generally just not at their best. And they're probably not the most likable and the most friendly, <laughs> um, not as they would normally be. And just because of what's going on in our cultural moment, I mean, name one of any <laughs> of the, the, the things, the pandemic, the, the uh, cultural um, upheaval that's happening. I mean, the, the polarization in um, election years, all of these things, for various reasons, people are grieving. And so the opportunities are great for hurt, to both give hurt and both to um, be injured ourselves. Talk to me a little bit about, just even in this season, um, what have you discovered, maybe during the pandemic or maybe just in general about What do you value and love about the church? You know, it's often been in church where I have felt great closeness to the Lord and where His Spirit has testified to mine that I am His daughter, where I've received reminders of truth that I desperately needed to hear, where I've I've experienced repentance and encouragement. There are so many blessings found within these walls, but I also love When S1 says in Recovering Eden that the church buildings are not genie bottles, Mm -hmm. the church exists outside of Sundays and outside of this place because the church is comprised of his people. And um, I've also just been greatly blessed by his people outside of the sanctuary, Um, particularly last year. My husband and I found ourselves facing some difficult challenges and tough decisions that need to be made. We gathered together three other couples, some we knew well, others not as well who either knew our circumstances or had dealt with similar things. And we asked them to meet with us to pray and offer wise counsel. And uh, the beauty of that evening and the subsequent prayers and encouragement that followed are things that I will never forget or take for granted. I know that as fellow believers, they are going to be there with willing hands and willing hearts to offer honest advice, to pray, to meet together again if need be. And that is such a balm to my spirit. I think because we're all family within the body of Christ, there's a great freedom to reach out and ask for prayers and help and input when we we face life's challenges that we normally would not pursue with people until we knew each other extremely well. So the fact that we feel confident and that we have people nearby that we can trust, that will lift our concerns up to the Lord alongside us is priceless. And I simply can't put a value on that. Yeah, no, I agree. We experienced that as well when Cody was in the hospital. It was mm-hmm. just amazing how yes. much love and what, like you said, what type of balm that is to your soul mm-hmm. in the middle of that and what a gift it is. And I mean, I think we experience that regularly, but when you go through a crisis like Absolutely. that, you really recognize how precious it is. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, another thing I, I recognized during this season of quarantine is I'd say maybe about a month after we had started doing live stream worship services instead of meeting in the sanctuary together, I came down to hear John preach. And so when I came into the sanctuary, I sat actually up in the balcony and I was one of you know, five people there, you know, the sound crew, me and (laughs) one of the other pastors. And I, like I've already said, because I spend so much time thinking about what I should say and how I should interact and all that kind of thing. It's a relief to me at times to, it was that night to come and just sit there in the quiet Mm -hmm. and to gaze around at all the things that make the sanctuary at First Press so beautiful. You know, I just, I started noticing the intricate lattice work over the pipes in the organ and I've always loved the windows and the way that the light comes through and that stained glass window gets me every time and so I could sit there and just look around at the beauty and the history and all of these wonderful things and just be moved to think how beautiful and faithful God is in this quiet space and I thought I love this mm-hmm. and yet even with my tendencies to want to do that by myself, I did have the realization that this isn't, it's missing something. I'm Mm -hmm. missing, like all of these things around me are testifying to all of these characteristics of God, but they're not living testimonies. Mm -hmm. They can only, their testimony can only go so far as what I have perceived or understood beauty or faithfulness to be in and of myself. But when I'm surrounded by the body of Christ in corporate worship, I see God's beauty, faithfulness, tenderness, character, all of those sorts of things lived out in front of me in ways that I would never see or anticipate or plan or whatever. And so there's the glory that's given to the Lord when we're all together is a unique thing that I realized that night that you can't get that with inanimate objects. Mm, You can't mm -hmm. get that from a distance. You have to be close enough to see that in one of those lives. And so that really gave me an appreciation of corporate worship. And then I think, of course, the thing that I appreciate the most about the church is that it's not a man-made or man-sustained institution, that it really is a people brought, bought by the blood of Christ that he has committed himself to in such a way that he calls himself the head of the body, the bridegroom of the bride. There is no more intimate type of connection than that. And it's just an encouragement to me that, you know, the church, just like all of us, can seem messy and feel messy and seem mundane and feel all those sorts of things that we feel. And when I think about it only in terms of the people in it or the people leading it or whatever, eh, I'm either discouraged or put off. But when I think, no, 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 this is Christ's bride. Mm -hmm. This is his body. There is no other intimate sort of way to be connected to Mm -hmm. him than this. That is just my appreciation um, Mm -hmm. of the church really grows. And with that note of gospel encouragement, we hope you will listen in next week when we will be joined by Julie Wiggins and Sarah Price. Take us out on your front porch or take us for a walk in this beautiful fall weather. We will be discussing Ecclesiastes 5 and 8 through 7 and 29 with a focus on what it means to know God's presence in our everyday lives. We'd love for you to listen in. Sometimes a light surprises the Christian while she sings. It is the Lord who rises with healing in his wings. When comforts are declining, 
He grants the soul again A season of your shining To cheer it after the rain 